and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, policy, and politics that drive Texas. Obviously, I am not your host, Brian Phillips. No, I'm Jefferson Drexler, the senior videographer here at TPPF, and usually I'm behind the scenes, but this week we're giving the guys a very well-deserved week off. Well, sort of. Uh, Brian gets the week off. Derek took part in a really, really cool panel discussion where we discussed the uh, basically a recap of the 88th legislature. So for your viewing and listening pleasure, check it out. All right, let's let's get this show on the road. Um, we want to get finished before special session number two begins. So <laughs> got to get going. Um, so welcome to was this day three of special session number one? Is that right? Yeah. Two and a half. Uh, day 142. Is my math correct? Yeah. So, so uh, we'll see how many, uh, how, how high that number gets, of course, over the year. But uh, I want to welcome you all. This is our session recap on uh, our regular session recap. We'll talk a little bit about what's happening in the special sessions as well. But um, we'll kind of cover the good, the bad, and uh, the ugly of what, what is happening because this is obviously a very turbulent time. Uh, in, in Texas and in our uh, legislature, but really in America. But I think it's important also as conservatives that we spend some time celebrating uh, some victories because we actually did have several really good things happen uh, this session. Many of those TPPF uh, was involved in. So I'm going to give you some stats. Obviously, uh, the preface to these stats that uh, good friends Andrew and, and Derek gave to me uh, are that we don't take any of the votes. Our friends and the legislature take all the votes and do a lot of the hard work, but our team is over there constantly and testifying and, and working bills. And so TPPF supported 80 bills that passed this session, which is our high watermark ever. And so I think that is a testament to our team and to uh, everything we put in place. And 41% of our Liberty Action Agenda has passed, which is uh, incredible. I think if we were a highly, or uh, we were, I know we're all technically lobbyists, but if we were uh, paid on maybe a higher lobby scale, that would uh, be really good. We'd be batting at the upper echelon of, of most lobbyists. And 58% of all bills that we supported actually passed this session, which is, I think, incredible testament, again, to, to our team, three of who I have here today. So I will do some brief introductions. They gave me this long bio point, so I'll read uh, some of this. But then I want to get most importantly into the discussion about what has actually transpired and what we think will, will happen over the course of the rest of this year. But to my uh, immediate left is Sherry Sylvester. She's our distinguished senior fellow. So before joining us, Sherry was a senior advisor to uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. You might have seen her on this stage uh, while, uh, uh, I guess, mostly just listening to uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, yesterday. Um, but uh, uh, she, she has been a, just a, a godsend to us and, and knows the ins and outs of how things get done at the Capitol and, and has worked very tirelessly on uh, uh, higher education especially. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, Sherry also has a uh, bachelor's degree from Oklahoma State University, so she is a cowboy <laughs> through and through. Um, next is Derek Cohen. He is our VP of Policy. Derek, uh, prior to uh, that, was headed up our Ride on Crime initiative and still maintains senior fellow status there. And the most important thing to know about Derek is he is a Yankee from Ohio and has degrees from Bowling Green and Cincinnati. <laughs> so, you know, we are a true charity here and that we bring in the Yankees. <laughs> I don't know how many Aggies are in the room, so I really can't fight back. <laughs> That's true. And then uh, down on my, uh, at the very end is uh, Andrew Brown. He is our Associate VP of, of Policy as well as heads up our Rights for Family work. Um, he uh, is a Texan. He went to Baylor University and has a law degree 
from SMU and most importantly um, was integral into, into helping uh, Dr. Allerson and, and Dr. Campbell uh, pass banning gender modification for children, which we'll, we'll get into here in a little bit. All right, so to start the discussion, I want to kind of go down the line. I'll start with you, Sherry, ladies first always. Um, can you talk about some of the wins that Texans should be really excited about? Because I think, you know, as we look at the session, it feels like an incomplete, right? Like we did not pass school choice yet. We did not pass property tax relief yet. Um, we have not done as much as we probably want to do on the border yet. But there are a lot of good things that have happened that people probably didn't recognize. Obviously, you've worked a lot on a lot of those. What would be at the top of your list on, on things that people should recognize that Texas is leading on? Well, and I, th I think we need to, I want to do one more sentence because Greg talks about how conservatives don't really celebrate our victories. And we had some massive wins and still some of us like walk around down in the mouth. Well, why didn't we get the Mosquito Control Commission back? I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just. That's important. I was outside last night. <laughs> A lot of standing water. That's right. But culturally, we had, if we put them in that bucket, challenging the woke left right where they are, big victories. The Death Star Bill, mm. stopping the control of Democrat cities in Texas. There are crazy things that go on in Austin. I live in San Antonio where all kinds of things were on the ballot that they wanted to change so that they wouldn't have to follow our abortion laws, wouldn't have to follow our criminal justice laws, could defund the police. All these things were on the ballot, and this is happening all over the state. So what they call the Death Star Bill, that was a huge pushback of wokeness in the state. Uh, we mentioned uh, Andrews going after uh, gender mod and making that illegal, and I know he'll, the, the uh, puberty blockers and, and uh, trans transition care, uh, working with that. But the thing that I'm most excited about is uh, DEI, SB 17, getting rid of so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion on Texas campuses. This is the strongest bill in the country. Nobody else has tried it other than Florida. So we were able to look at Florida's bill. Our bill doesn't have those loopholes. The bill will close, require that those offices be closed on campuses, that no person who wants to uh, work at a Texas university will be forced to sign a statement saying that they believe that institutions of higher education in, in, uh, on one level and the U.S. on another level are primarily driven by white supremacy and patriarchy because that's what DEI is. And as you see this debate coming back, well, how are colleges and universities going to recruit minority students? They'll still be able to do that. How are they going to be able to help veterans or first-generation students, they'll still be able to do that. How are they going to be able to enforce their civil rights laws, protect Title IX? They will still be able to do that. DEI had nothing to do with that. DEI was an, is an ideological belief, and its goal was to get that into every area of the campus. One of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Daniel Bonavac, who testified for for against the DEI or in, for, in support of the DEI bill, 
said that it operates like a campus thought police. Mm -hmm. And you can't laugh at the wrong joke. You can't like the wrong social media post. It is really an oppression on campus. This work isn't over. TPPF is already pulling together and thinking about our process of what we're going to have to do next on this. But I think that was really powerful. Along the same lines, we, we uh, did some important work in getting drag queens out of the schools. Uh, this, again, a culture where we are gaslighted, where we're made to believe that this is normal. And uh, we haven't succeeded yet in getting them out of public libraries. But I, why do we need this? Why don't we have senior citizens reading stories in yeah. public schools? Anybody. I mean, TPPF would have a sign-up sheet. We'd go read stories. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's, so I think huge win to take on the culture. They did everything we knew we would, they would do. They called us racist. They marched. They were in the Capitol every day. And, uh, and still, we just persevered. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's the first time in, I feel like, a while that in Texas the legislature has taken the fight to the left mm -hmm. on a lot of these cultural issues. And uh, you know, I think it's encouraging to, to those of us in the fight that we're finally pushing back. Like things that you wouldn't think, like, why do we even need laws? Why, why, wh how do we not know it's not inappropriate for people? However, you, to be scantily dressed and dancing provocatively in front of children is not the way that we should be <laughs> proceeding in our society. And um, it's just amazing that we have to do these things, but it's important that, that when they, they come up that we take care of them. So yeah, I think you're right. Derek, what about you? What do you think are the things that Texans really need to be paying attention to as big wins that will affect the state for years to come? Well, obviously the banner victory, uh, when it comes to the general theme of protecting children, uh, belongs to the gentleman uh, to my left and the folks that he worked with. But I think that we did a lot of things around that particular theme as well. You know, we don't, you need to look no further than some of the victories that our tech campaigns had. You know, obviously Representative Caprillion has put together a massive, I, I would argue probably the strongest data privacy bill in the nation. Mm -hmm. um, then we have uh, Representative Slauson doubled down on that and has one of the uh, strongest child protection bills. Uh, in the nation for the online realm. And then add to that the uh, Reader Act, the Reader Act that basically gives a, a process by which uh, to identify and if need be uh, remove uh, salacious material from school libraries. All of this protects some of the, uh, protects children. And you know, so many folks over on the left were saying, you know, if you wanna protect children, you should do X, you should do Y, you should do Z, and name all these tangential things that have nothing to actually do with the policy but we actually got in there and identified things that come to direct effect on that. Now, you mentioned earlier both about celebrating victories and Sherry mentioned about changing the narrative overall. Mm. I can't underline that enough. If you look at, say, where we were on healthcare, you know, two sessions ago, three sessions ago, it was, oh, here comes the latest push for, uh, you know, re reinvigoration of Obamacare or Texas should expand, whatever the case might be. That debate doesn't even happen anymore. What we are seeing now is how do we make healthcare accessible and affordable for all? And of course, you know, David will be the first to has will be the first to mention that coverage doesn't equal care. But what can we do with the public programs that we already do have to ensure that individuals on those programs do have that access? Make sure that access or make sure that that is delivering effective healthcare via those programs. 
and for those who don't qualify for those programs, suppressing the overall costs and giving them alternatives such as association health plans mm -hmm. wherein they can actually uh, achieve that themselves. Healthcare, I could go on and on. Obviously, there was a very massive uh, medical transparency bill uh, that was worked on by Representative uh, Harris and Senator Hughes, uh, which I think is, you know, didn't get the fanfare it deserved, but if everything got the fanfare I thought it deserved, we'd, this would be a, like an eight-hour panel. <laughs> but all that to say is I think that improving the efficiency of government uh, was a great secondary theme as well. Not only did you see some of the work that James Quintero has done, uh, with local governments, uh, again, you already mentioned the the Death Star bill, but as far as making them more functional, you know, if they can you for sure. those who might not know, maybe explain a little bit further what what the Death Star bill does. And it, it, I think it is going to be perhaps the most consequential thing that passed out of the, this uh, uh, session. Absolutely, uh, understanding can, that the the ban on gender mod might have been the hardest yeah. fight actually of what, what passed. I, I don't know. I could go. I could do hours on municipal regulations. I can't. Mean, <laughs> I can't. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. sleep. <laughs> so so uh, HB twenty one twenty seven, uh, which was a joint product in uh, in years of development, both from Senator Creighton and others, and Chairman Burroughs and others. What that essentially does is identifies three broad areas for what's known as a, or I'm sorry, five broad areas for what's known as a field preemption. Essentially, it says that you know if the state is regulating in these areas, then the locals can't come and enact their own patchwork. What are some of the things that we've seen the locals do? Obviously, issues. You know, when I was working on criminal justice issues, they would try to tell employers how they need to manage criminal uh, criminal background checks. Of course, it's interesting, the, gov the governments who's actually making these uh, background checks, proliferating these background checks, but they wanna also then take the private sector and hold them to task about, mm -hmm. about that. They wanna talk about uh, labor standards. They wanna talk about uh, various forms of regulation within the, uh, the building space. All these things uh, are tantamount to something that if it, if it varies across municipalities, the, basically the overhead of going from one municipality to the other is greatly increased. If you're running a business in Austin, and that's gonna be fundamentally different than how you would run that exact same business in Round Rock, you essentially need to, you know, two bodies of employment law, or at least somebody looking at two bodies, in order to run that through. And so, in other words, this field preemption makes standard predictable regulation at the local level that can be seen throughout the state. And I think that that is going to be one of the most important uh, bills uh, for keeping the Texas miracle alive. Not to mention that, which was also done on firming up the grid. Now there's still stuff to do on yeah. the grid, but we can talk about that later. But I think that that's something that will, again, keep that prosperity promise that we have going in Texas. Yeah, I think it's really important. People don't recognize the, the uh, hidden costs, right? When you have a higher uh, regulatory environment in one municipality over another, what that does for everyone, even if you don't live in that municipality, because they often use that highest, uh, uh, most restrictive uh, standard. And so I, I think that will change uh, and make actually smaller businesses able to compete in a much broader way across the state, which will be much more beneficial for consumers and for Texans. So I think you're right. Andrew, so you had a very busy session. I'm, I'm curious what you would think is maybe something yeah. we should be celebratory about, but I think it's important that, you know, what, what happened and what Dr. Alverson and Dr. Campbell did with, with, with your help is, is really important, um, but it's not something that happened overnight. It took multiple right. sessions to get there. So could you kind of maybe give some of the backstory too as you kind of, I presume, head into what happened with SB 14? Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we get into SB 14, a couple other wins from across the foundation. You know, obviously, 
school choice is the big question mark that will be taken up. What we're hearing is in the fall. Um, but outside of that, you had a lot of wins on the education front in terms of curriculum transparency and accountability to parents. You know, increasing the role of parents to direct their child's education outside of the school choice was a massive win. And so parents are now able to access what their kids are learning in schools. They're able to give that feedback. Um, and they're able to raise red flags when kids are being taught things that they shouldn't be taught. And we're getting our curriculum back to quality, actually teaching kids the information and the skills that they need to know to be successful in life, rather than indoctrinating them from a radical left-wing ideology. We're doing that through K through 12. We're doing that at higher ed, as Sherry had mentioned earlier. A lot of progress made um, on the education front and the energy front, getting rid of ESG and investing, getting rid of you know, punishing organizations that invest in fossil fuels. Again, the theme of this session is really going after the left at the institutional strongholds that they've been so good at setting up and realizing if we're going to take this country back, if we're going to make Texas and America the greatest places to live, work, and raise a family, we have to get our institutions back. And it's not just government where that fight lies. That, that fight lies in investment firms. It lies in the education system. You know, it lies in any social organization that you can think of where the left has really entrenched themselves and taken those uh, forts and those strongholds over. You know, this session we were going after that. And I think the success of any legislation as a conservative, you can look to how loud are the radical leftists yelling? And there was a noted columnist who put out a piece yesterday, I won't mention his name, um, but he basically was saying, well, this was the best session for bigots, right? And you're hearing the left all over Twitter and all over the blogosphere basically saying, why did y'all do the culture war? Why are you doing all this culture war stuff? I'm like, we didn't start the culture war, y'all started it. We're just winning it now because we're coming after you where you've entrenched yourselves. And that noise, all of that wailing and gnashing of teeth that we're seeing from the left right now tells me that conservatives in Texas are onto something and we need to keep pushing forward as we'll talk about later on. Now, when it comes to SB 14, that was something that really had its genesis back in 2018, really. Um, and it was not something TPPF was ever really out front on until this session, but we always, and Thank goodness for our board of directors and our leadership. You know, I had a leash to help behind the scenes. We weren't going to ever get out in front on it, but we were helping behind the scenes with recommending language, working with sponsors, you know, trying to get this issue to take traction. Um, you know, we made some gains um, during the 87th with House Bill 1399, which was sponsored by Representative Matt Krause. Um, you know, that obviously, for it's fairly well known, that died um, in committee, didn't get out of committee in time to get to the, well, it died on the floor, it just, they ran out of time on the floor. Um, but that started that conversation. And when we ask our questions, okay, why is it taking so long to get these big things done? You have to realize that hindsight is always twenty twenty. Nobody was talking about this issue until the last year or two. That's when it really tipped into the public consciousness. There were small groups of us who were seeing this on the horizon who were starting to work on it, but it didn't become an issue where the public was up in arms and the legislators decided, oh my gosh, this is horrific, we actually need to do something about this, really until the last year or two. 
And we see that actually in the polling that's been done on the issue. Our communications team does an incredible job polling voters uh, on a very regular basis. We've been polling on gender mod of children for you know over a year, probably two years now. Within the last year, support for banning gender modification of children increased by 14%. That is a massive increase from the polling. Our, the professional pollsters we hire, they say, we never see jumps in support like this in that short a period of time. And it's because this issue has now gone into the public consciousness. And when you actually understand what's going on, what these medications are doing to kids, what these surgeries are all about, it's horrific. I mean, doing this research, I don't even want to talk about the things that I learned, because it is truly horrific uh, what's being done to kids. And this was the year that all of that tipped. And the momentum was there um, over the interim. We were working with sponsors. We were working with leadership to try to find what's the right solution. Um, and playing the long game on that right solution, because we knew we were coming after a sacred cow of the radical left. And when they can't win in the court of public opinion, what do they do? They sue you. And so we knew from day one, this is going to be subject of a lawsuit. And what do you know, the moment it passed both chambers, the ACLU <laughs> and Equality Texas and these groups all come out saying, we're going to file a lawsuit. I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> we, we've known this for two years. That You're not surprising anyone here. Um, but that really went into how did we craft SB 14 in looking at, OK, well, how's that lawsuit going to come down? Um, and one of the benefits of being a part-time legislature, and we always like to talk about Texas leading and we want Texas to lead. But we actually had the benefit, being a part-time legislature, of seeing Arkansas go first and seeing other states start going first, but then also start talking to each other. Um, and having a national coalition come around with a bunch of amazing allies, um, Heritage, Alliance Defending Freedom, brilliant experts at the national level, kind of really coordinating and making sure we were all, each of us at the state level, were talking to each other and learning from each other's experience. And so we're able to craft the legislation based on, oh, they're going to file an equal protection claim. Here's how you build this out in the legislation to defend against an equal protection claim. Um, oh, they're making this charge over here. OK, let's make sure that we tighten that piece of the legislation up. So you had this dynamic learning environment that was happening across the states that helped make this legislation, I think, the strongest legislation protecting kids from these radical medical practices in the entire country. And quite frankly, I'm excited for the lawsuit. I'm ready to take this to the Supreme Court and win this outright. Awesome. All right. Yes. Actually, yeah. and if FB 14 was the only thing Andrew worked on this session, that would still be a, <laughs> a, a major victory. But that goes without saying that he also, with his work with uh, Right for Families, completely ran the table as well on issues of child protection as basically a two-man outfit with him and uh, Dustin Matoka, we're able to get everything from prohibiting uh, you know, hidden foster care, a CPS omnibus reform, all these things that RFF did you know, are kind of like, kind of faded in the back to SB 14, but means a great deal to those kids that are stuck in the child welfare system. I want to say, can I say one more thing about SB 14? And I, I, Andrew and I, I got to do some work with him early on as we trudged up to the Capitol and, be, and began to do this. And what I think was very powerful is the research 
that TPPF provided. This was not a culture war fight. Mm -hmm. We were on the side of the science. Mm -hmm. The rest of the world is on the side of the science and kind of catching up. It's only in parochial backwaters like the U.S. where we're still treating it like it's some kind of a, a, a individual rights uh, issue. But Andrew, laying this bill out in a way that uh, makes it a model and I'm confident you'll win the lawsuit. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So congratulations, Andrew. Most importantly, congratulations to Dr. Oliverson, Dr. Campbell, and the, the kids of Texas who aren't gonna have to go through this horrific procedure, hopefully, anymore. Um, Sherry, kind of going back to what you were talking about on the, the DEI side, I, I think this is, you know, as I said earlier, this is some of the biggest reforms we've seen in higher education uh, in a while, you know? And obviously you worked with Aaron Valdez and Dr. Uh, Tom Lindsay on our team on this, but can you talk a little bit about the tenure fight, which I think is uh, something uh, I've experienced as, as uh, makes people a little crazy, um, uh, based on an op-ed I wrote. Uh, Dared, <laughs> how, what, what, a guy, what, what would an Aggie with a finance degree know about tenure in academia? I dared to ask, um, uh, but maybe they're right. But uh, uh, talk about those reforms, because I think they're important, and talk about maybe what's next in, in reform in higher education. It is our, our team, uh, uh, Aaron Valdez and Dr. Tom Lindsay, we, were, we, we had also some powerful accreditation legislation that we lost. And accreditation is, is uh, each university must be accredited by a larger organization, like I'll garble this area, Aaron. Uh, this has been going on since the 40s. And what we're finding is that, that these accreditors, they don't really don't come into a university and say, well, are your kids doing well? That's not anything that they care about, the outcome of the kids, but they do play a role in uh, moving this culture, this left-wing culture forward. Uh, they're expensive. We, we wanted to give Texas universities the opportunity to get rid of their accreditors, to get better accreditors. We had a, a, a Aaron put together a really good bill, and we had a really good couple of bills, and uh, so that's another battle that's another thing that, that will be at the top of the list. Tenure, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, over the interim, uh, after we passed the uh, public school uh, CRT legislation, which banned uh, the teaching of critical race theory in public schools, there were the faculty senate met up at the University of Texas. And essentially, they came out and made an official statement. And it said, you are not the boss of us. <laughs> <laughs> that go over well? <laughs> we'll teach whatever we want, thank you very much. We don't have to pay any attention to the Board of Regents or the legislature. That's what they said. As if they're not being paid with our taxpayer dollars. So, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, being you know the, the mild-mannered leader that he is, <laughs> came back and said, Maybe let's get rid of this tenure thing. <laughs> and, uh, and we polled it. Uh, our colleague Brian uh, Phillips, we put together some polling questions. And you know what we found? Almost 80% of Texans believe that college professors should get an annual uh, job review just like the rest of us. <laughs> that they should not get a guarantee that for six years, and then that's automatically re-upped, that they can pretty much say whatever they want 
or do whatever they want. And as, as Aaron and Tom and I began researching this, this has all kinds of implications. It's not just the left-wing professors that you're keeping. It also means you're keeping all your uh, uh, Deadwood. So uh, Aaron will tell you, particularly in our community colleges, with our workforce changing, we need dynamic people. We need instructors that are on the cutting edge and that know what's going on, but this keeps that turnover from happening. So, uh, however, boy, they were really motivated. Granted, most of them just had to walk across the street. <laughs> To, uh, but we were up for hours and hours as as she got some were border fencing. <laughs> <laughs> we were up for hours and hours. They were uh, the the university was very offended by this, and it was hard because our allies, conservative professors, also were telling us, "Hey, this is the only thing that protects us, and if we don't have this, you know, we'll be fired the next day." And and uh, so it. it it was a debate that that uh, that really you know was hard hard debate to have. Uh, in the end, I think I think we could have won it, but it, it uh, the house does what the house does, and mm -hmm. so. Uh, we well, we still got better. some good reforms on tenure, yes. which I think will make a big difference. We did, we did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Want to jump in real quick on the higher ed stuff? What Erin Valdez and her team also did on workforce this year mm -hmm. was incredible, and making sure that. Students have the option of going to colleges, universities, technical schools that are actually going to prepare them to have valuable skills in the workforce and to have that information up front to be able to know what kind of salary can I expect from this degree program that I'm pursuing and being able to select a, an educational path where they're not going to be in debt for the rest of their lives, but they're building generational wealth for them and their families. That's a massive, massive uh, amount of work that was done and a massive amount of progress that was made on these issues that are going to have, again, like I said, generational impacts on Texans into the future. Yeah, I think you're right. So, so Derek, my next question is for you. So uh, we talked a lot about some of the great things that happened, but I, I think one of the biggest misses, maybe one of the most frustrating misses was that we have yet to come to an agreement on property taxes. Mm -hmm. Now, yesterday we heard a lot from the uh, lieutenant governor on property taxes. Um, obviously, here at the foundation, we're big fans of, of compression and buying down that, that tax rate. But I think what's frustrating to most Texans is that there was 95% agreement, it yeah. seemed like, and it was that last 5% that we couldn't get to. Understanding those are important issues, and, right. and, and I can understand where, where the House and the Senate are, are coming from on that. So obviously, in this special session, the governor called specifically for compression. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, just, I'm just curious your takes on, one, what do you think is going to happen, and when will Texans actually have actual property tax relief? Well, uh, hopefully I can at least stall until I get that set, the, the, uh, the latter question, but no, so... It's the most loaded question I can ask. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, do I get fired if I answer wrong? No. All, all joking aside, I think the important thing to understand is the frustration that Greg was talking about, the frustration that most of these Texans uh, feel and are going to feel comes from the fact that, you know, people talk about being born on third base and act like you've... you've uh, uh, hit a triple. This is getting born, uh, you know, 90% of the way down the third base line because the pat there's a pass ball to the catcher and still not being able to score a run. Um, and the reason is is because, like Greg mentioned, 
not only did they agree on the need for property tax reform, people have been calling for property tax reform uh, you know, for decades. Obviously, so much of our local fisks are filled up by uh, property taxes. So we had agreement on the actual need. They agreed on the actual amount, or you know, give or take, uh, you know, within a within a billion or so. But they actually generally agreed on the amount. That's a billion amongst friends. Yeah, yeah exactly. rounding it's about, yeah. about seventeen billion. You should say that. Yeah, yeah. seventeen billion. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely, but they were they were very close on the number as well. They were also close on the central mechanism, which, as you mentioned, is compression, which is what you use to buy down uh, the local levy, the one that really uh, hits you where you feel it, specifically with like say school district M and L. And so we had all those things in line. And then the House goes, and we should do property cap, uh, property valuation cap. The Senate goes, oh, we should increase uh, the various exemptions. And those two were irreconcilable, those two, that, that final element. And then, as we've seen, the governor said, okay, well, on the call, I'm just going to add just compression. Y'all already agree on the fact that we need this. You already agree on the fact that uh, compression is a the best way of really getting that M&O pinch out of there. So we'll do that and we can come back in either a subsequent special or uh, you know, or next session and we can worry about what does that other, that other element look like. And not only that, but then we'll also have an updated uh, revenue estimate and so that we can find out which one fits the best. And uh, unfortunately, the, the chambers were still unable to, uh, were still unable to uh, come to an agreement on that. Now, what will happen is anybody's guess. Um, obviously, y'all saw that the House uh, went sine die after passing a call compliant um, bill with that. Um, so they're basically out of commission. So if they make any edits in the Senate or with the one that Senate set over, you know, those are essentially uh, dead on arrival. And so the, the, the process begins anew. The one thing I'm concerned, I don't think that, and I agree that both both chambers make good points on why their particular model is, should be ascendant. The problem is when you're into that particular area, you're explaining, you're not showing, and what the people do see is, you know, every time the valuations come right up to the cap, the levies come right up to the cap, everything keeps going up lockstep. And that's where the relief need was felt. And now if things keep going forward at this brinksmanship, it's not gonna get delivered. And that I think is going to be the biggest opportunity where both chambers run the risk of really disenfranchising some of their uh, core supporters because of their inability to, you know, to compromise, to deal with uh, you know, basically grace and uh, aplomb with the other's chamber and getting that across the goal line. Because I can tell you at the end of the day, you know, a compression-based only plan everybody will feel but the fact is, I plan that does include nothing or nothing happening at all. That's going to leave a lot of people with a bad taste in their mouth. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately why we'll get it because everyone knows we we have to get this done. And 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 the lieutenant governor, the speaker, the the the, the governor. I think they will make it happen. And sometimes yeah. it just takes time. The end of session is a very tense time. But at the end of the day, I think they they all know and recognize that we want to deliver for Texans. And and so I I have very high hopes and expectations that we will get there. It just mm -hmm. might take another special or, or two and so we'll, we'll kind of see how that works out my hope is that they they get it figured out very soon Agreed. or perhaps we can go the route of your home state which only has one house <laughs> go unicameral go unicameral what sherry is pointing out is that i was born in nebraska so, I was. <laughs> so, so i'm a yankee too derek <laughs> i failed to mention that right convenient for you <laughs> yeah that's right it's a error of omission um so uh 
Andrew, you know, obviously we, we just talked a little bit about property taxes as a miss. What are some of the other things that didn't get accomplished that um, you, you hope either in a future session or future special session uh, we, we bring back because they'll be really consequential for Texas? The big thing is school choice. Mm -hmm. That is the issue of this session. That is the issue of the last decade. I mean, it's the issue for GPPF. Mm -hmm. um, we were founded on two issues, school choice and tort reform. We got tort reform done a while ago, and so, I mean, this may be the year that we have to close our doors, because if our two founding <laughs> issues are done, do, do we, like, vanish out of existence? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> hope not. Um, but yeah, there's been so much momentum behind that. And for the same reason that a lot of the education wins I talked about earlier got done, COVID had so much to do with that. Parents saw what was going on in their kids' schools and they were rightfully up in arms about it. And they started pushing for more transparency, for more accountability, and critically, they started pushing for more choice. And we've now seen state after state after state across the country passing some version of school choice. And you even look at some of the test votes that they had in the House this year, the Herrero Amendment, that it's an amendment that's voted on every year that says we're not gonna send public money towards school choice I think they got their lowest number of yes votes that they've ever had on that. Yeah, it was like 75. Right? Yeah, it yeah. Was, yeah. And then it got stripped out in conference like it always does. So it's very much a performative vote. But even knowing that this is a performative vote, members who had previously voted for it in the past are now starting to say, ooh, I think I probably need to vote against that because I'm hearing a lot from my folks back home that they really like choice and that they really want choice in education. Um, you know, that's the big thing that's left undone, in my opinion, and that's the one thing that we have to get done. Um, yeah. To I, call this session a true home run session. Yeah, and you talk about school choice being like of the moment. I, I think you're right, and you see states like Arkansas and Oklahoma and Nebraska just passed their own school choice bill. Um, but I, I think Texas, while we might be, not be first to this uh, in line, I think we ultimately will pass the biggest. And you know, you think about where this issue has come in Texas in a short amount of time. You know, a year ago, people were barely talking about this, um, and uh, but now it is becoming a big issue. And uh, really, a lot of that credit goes to to the governor, who has leaned a hundred percent in and continues to lean in on that issue. And uh, I, 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 when you see him, and I've been to several of these events that we've done around the state uh, with, with him on on this issue, and you see these kids, and you see him, and you see. Uh, what is at stake? You realize, like, we, you know, we're, we're not standing with a, a system that wants to control the money and control the kids. We're standing with these kids, and, and that's why it's a righteous fight. Which I think ultimately, at the end, of, by the end of this year, we will have the largest school choice program in the country. So, so I, I to keep holding out, hold out hope there, because I think we're going to get there. So, um, Sherry, obviously, you know, um, session is uh, one of those things that gets very interesting and very turbulent especially at the end I think this one was was can you talk uh, maybe go a little bit you know, behind the curtains and a little bit inside baseball of of kind of how the dynamics between uh, the chambers have a, maybe affected legislation you know lieutenant governor talked a lot about that yesterday but you know I think we, we've talked about a lot of good legislation that did get passed so obviously it's not it's not it's not impossible to get mm -hmm. things done but can you talk a little bit about the process and maybe um, if, if how things were affected by 
how the session ended. Yeah, and 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 there's some others we could go. The three of us, the four of us, could go on. There's some things that we we uh, should have passed a law. Things got lost. We had some election reforms. Texas State uh, Technical College. We needed that. We need virtual education reform. So a lot of things just got lost. And um, one of the things that Lieutenant Governor Patrick pointed out yesterday is that there's the there's such a radical difference in the the rules of the House and the rules of the Senate. Mm. The Senate uh, is smaller. The, the senators, each senator represents a million people. They begin work. The budget uh, is, people work on the budget year round. They are, so Finance Committee, Joan Huffman, those people are, are always meeting. And when the uh, Senate comes in, the uh, chairmen are appointed, and they are ready to hit the ground running. The House is here for a month before they get their, that's just the way they're, now they write the rules, so they could change the rules, but they, they have always, in all the time I've been working here, they're- Been roughly the same rules, yeah. Right, they're, they're very far behind, they, uh, they move things slowly, Whereas in the, in the Senate, the Lieutenant Governor's Office decides what bills come up. In the House, they have a 13-member calendar committee that can uh, uh, pass bills. They can blackball bills and hold them for three days. So it, it's, it's a stalling machine. And every session that I've been in, and I've been in plenty, um, <laughs> I did count it, but I forgot what the number was. The House always feels they come in in the last 10, 15 days, and they send maybe 1,200 bills over to the Senate. The Senate's got whatever it's got, 10 committees. There's no way they can hear the bills. Every House member who feels strongly about their bill feels like they are personally being targeted, <laughs> that their bill is not being heard. We had. Um, TPPF has launched a uh, ladies' capital caucus, and we had uh, an open, uh, what, about 10 days ago? We had a uh, happy hour upstairs, and uh, half a dozen women House members came over and talked with us. So this is just another great thing TPPF is doing. Every one of them told us that their bills were being targeted. They couldn't get them. But they were telling you, Sherry, how can you help me get these to the Senate? <laughs> so I, I, I don't know that I'm a answering your question, but it, it creates a, 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 a backlog, and it's always coming through the House. The Senate always finishes. Lieutenant Governor Patrick, in uh, my humble opinion, is probably the best legislative leader Texas has had since LBJ. He's the first lieutenant governor to have actually served as a senator. He has close relationships with every Senate member, Democrats and Republicans. He knows what legislation they're championing, what he can get through. So he, is, he's, he runs a very efficient shop. The House is different, the turnover, they're, they're younger, they're wilder, there's lots more factions. <laughs> A lot, lots of days. different, different, different <laughs> so, kinds so of leadership. Some speaker Craddock feels, he's just a wild kid. We had, I, I like to tell these inside stories I think people need. We had a pool here on the, the last day the calendar for, uh, for the House was what, like 30 pages or something. We had a pool on what page they would end, because at one page, it's, you know, the clock ticks over, they're done. Everything after page 12 dies. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, you won that, didn't you, Andrew? I think I, I won one of them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, so, we had two pools this year. I won one and lost. So I don't know if I'm supposed to be well, no, I think, answering I think this in a more prop yeah. policy way, but that's kind of yeah, the process. Yeah, I think that helps people understand the process a little bit better. All right, we're about to go to questions. And so while you're thinking of your questions, and, and Clint will come up, I'm going to ask the very first one uh, to Derek. You know, I think another one of the things that we didn't maybe send enough tools over to the, the governor's office to, to, uh, to address is border security. So, mm -hmm. you know, that was one of the things on the special session call. Obviously, the House sent over the bill. I think there possibly could be more. Can you talk about what has happened on border security and what maybe uh, what else could be on the on the docket? Absolutely. And just for a level setting, because I think Jerry had a lot of nails on the head with with that last answer about House process. And the lieutenant governor from this stage yesterday rightly, rightly observed that a certain element of that process, specifically the rulings on points of orders, have gotten absolutely out of control. Uh, we can talk, if somebody wants to ask a question, hint somebody ask a question about those particular things we can go off. But many of the things that those particular uh, procedural maneuvers took out were effective border security measures. Obviously, HB 20 being the biggest, uh, seeing uh, the Border uh, Protection Force amended onto HB 7, then HB 7 just getting, albeit a minor, uh, facelift in the Senate going back over and getting popped again for germaneness. All this stuff basically depleted a lot of the tools in the toolbox that the governor, uh, his appointees at DPS or uh, Texas military, all the uh, take, takes tools out of the toolbox. Now, they were very generous in the legislature in providing funding for Operation Lone Star and the continued border uh, security operations. The thing is, you know, obviously we've been trying to protect the border for, for quite some time, obviously with the, the complete dereliction of duty that we've seen from this federal administration. There is no st stopping or snatching the flow and just throwing money at the problem while you know the, the governor is getting creative in how that uh, money is being deployed. There's only so much we can do with an existing law absent some of the different ideas that had been killed this year. And so giving those tools or putting those tools in the toolbox, I think is first and foremost, um, I think the, one of the more meaningful uh, bills that went through is how we deal with some of the criminal elements, specifically uh, the great work that uh, Corrine uh, and uh, Melissa did on uh, the RICO uh, formation in the, uh, uh, for dealing with those folks uh, and organized crime. But that being said, is that is but one element for prosecution after someone has been you know, arrested and the actual case proved up. So again, that kicks it so far down the so far down the the line that what are we doing actually to secure the border now? Yeah. And if you look at the bills that went through, not very much. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's go to questions. And so Clint is here, so just wait. So um, who's got the first question? Just remember, it has to end in a question mark. <laughs> right, right here. Yes, ma'am. Good afternoon. Um, I wanted to ask about school choice. Um, what was your agenda there? What didn't get accomplished? And what was what strategy do you look to go forward to try to achieve that? Yeah, the core of the school choice plan was something called education savings accounts. And so essentially, the best way to make that as understandable as possible is the money follows the students. Every student in the state of Texas. Uh, based on certain qualifications that were built into that bill would get X number of dollars every school year. And that money could be spent on a series of approved educational expenses. 
It could go to private school tuition for homeschoolers. It can go to curriculum um, and other aids to doing homeschooling work. It can go to tutoring. Uh, there's a number of approved expenses that families could use that pot of money for. Um, now that was calculated based on what is the average school spend per student and then there was some flexibility built in there so that you weren't just fully taking all of that money away from the public schools. There's actually money that's left behind with the public school when a student leaves with an ESA. Um, and so I, that's one thing that I think is really key to remember about this because the education establishment that basically has said we will not give an inch on anything related to school choice whether it's for the poorest students or the most students with the most special needs, we're not going to budge at all. You know, their complaint, they cry poverty all the time. We need more money, we need more money, we need more money. We give them more money and then they say, well, if you just gave us more money after that, we would do a better job. They were always, have. this is the refrain, and they were objecting, oh my gosh, these kids are gonna leave. Well, first of all, why are they gonna leave if you're doing such a good job? If you're doing such a good job, they should be staying. Um, but two, they're saying, if they're gonna leave, it's gonna defund our school. Well, no, because you're getting that allotment for every child who remains at your school, plus a percentage of the allotment of that child who leaves the school. So that's, that child is leaving money on the table, so to speak, and their family is leaving money on the table with that school. And that was specifically done to make sure that we didn't have a situation where you, you know, the public schools uh, that people wanted to access would have a harder time. So you know, that bill creates a really good balance and provides a lot of choice um, and choice, I think, in a very reasonable way, in a way that you know is, I would say, easy to implement. I've been, I've sat down with our education folks when um, they were working on negotiating and drafting that bill, and the things that they know just are hard for me to wrap my head around as to how our schools are funded. Uh, but that's the basic mechanism of how that bill will work. Yeah, and so then the strategy that happened was originally there was a bill that's just specific to school choice, and it had passed out of the Senate and uh, eventually died in the House. And so then the Senate tried to reattach it to a school finance bill, but then um, they could not come to an agreement in conference, and so that, that bill died as well. And so I think what you're going to see is a special session that will have some school finance stuff, which include teacher pay raises and, and things of that nature, open enrollment, school choice, maybe some apprenticeship work, I, all these education-related things come back at some point later, either this summer or in the fall. To, to be addressed, and the hope is that we get all of this done and, and uh, together. And so we'll see. I, I feel very encouraged, but um, it's it's definitely a, a road to haul because, as as Andrew said, a lot of uh, especially I'd say rural areas are are concerned about what will happen to their schools because their their schools are often the the center of their communities and they and a very important part of what it means to be part of that community. And what I've been telling our our friends who are rural legislators or people who live in rural areas is you have to remember that yes, most of these people aren't gonna to leave to other schools. You don't have the population density to, to maybe set up another private school or even a charter school, right? And, and so, but what you can do, and it's important because you can revitalize and strengthen your community through workforce opportunities using education savings accounts. And so they can use that either at a, a community college, a lot of even rural areas have access to that, uh, or public-private partnerships, where they can have access and, and get trained for workforce opportunities that these communities need. And so we have over 150 counties in Texas that are losing population. These are rural counties, and they hold the values of what, what it means to be a Texan, what it, why we've been so successful. And so it's important to us. We are definitely not trying to destroy 
uh, rural communities through school choice. What we're trying to do is actually strengthen and revitalize them, and I think it's actually an opportunity to do that. And it's important to note on that because that is a very popular canard with, uh, you know, kind of the the establishment, is that everywhere they've done this, and they have done this in many places, that has never happened. Yeah. It's a really important point. All right, next question. Right here. I was really excited by your guys' work on school choice, so thank you for that. I'm really curious for folks that were on, that went from no to school choice to yes, what was the strategy both on the left and on the right to get people to get to the yes on school choice? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And so everyone is different, and I think that's the – you know, is it like the same way that we, well, the reason we are big believers in school choice is we believe every child is different, they learn differently, we want to put them in the environment that helps them the best. It's the same as we look at, at legislative members. Their districts are different and what the things that they face are different. And so if you look at rural members, um, a lot of it is showing them how this can help their communities and how it can be strengthened and strengthen their communities. Because they saw through redistricting, a lot of their districts changed drastically because of population shifts. And so what we wanted to show them is this is actually a way to bring, bring jobs back and keep people in your, in your communities because you're creating educational opportunities and, and job opportunities uh, ultimately and, and, and allowing them to fill jobs. So that's kind of how we address the rural ones. On the, on the urban side, right, a lot of times they are dealing with schools that are not performing and uh, uh, they're having kids that are, are being left behind. And so uh, we, this is a way for them to increase that ability. And so we've seen in Florida, when Florida instituted school choice, uh, low-income uh, students were 35th, I think, in, uh, in, uh, in the NAEP scores uh, as far as uh, academic achievement. Now they're number one. And the reason they're doing that is because of school choice. Most of these kids did not leave their local schools, but what you're seeing is it allowed all boats to rise because it has it is in, in, infused competition into the system and made them respond to, uh, to, to parents. And so we're trying to show them that this is actually something that will help their communities because we all believe that education is something that will ultimately um, uh, get kids, if you're in poverty, help you get out of poverty, but will lead you to a more prosperous uh, life. And so it's important that they understand that this is a way that they can do that for their communities. So everyone is different. We show them polling in their district. We show them... Uh, we, we show them all kinds of information that are specific to their district, what, even down to what are the workforce needs in that district and, and uh, where are their gaps and how this could help. And so we, we look at it literally by each member's district in the Senate and the House and, and talk to them individually because that's ultimately how they're voting is by their district. Anything you all want to add to that? I think you hit the nail on the head. Right. Next question. Yes, sir. Actually, I have a... Uh... Ms. Sylvester, you brought up an interesting comment, although you kind of just brought up as a quip, and you're from Nebraska. But no, I'm from Nebraska. Don't dare. Me. <laughs> no, no, she actually brought up a good point. Wouldn't we be better off with one chamber in our state legislatures and our Congress as far as getting bills passed? A good example is our you know, uh, property tax. It supposedly had bipartisan support and it didn't pass because of differences between, as uh, the gentleman over there brought up, you know, on these, what was it, the exemption, increasing the exemption, mm -hmm. and then they couldn't come to an agreement. Would we be better off with just one chamber in both our Congress and our state legislatures? 
I just bring that up. Now, I know it had to be a constitutional amendment to change it, but it That'd does seem huge. like the, the passage of bills in general, it's tough when you've got two chambers that even come up with a popular subject like uh, reducing property taxes, which I think everybody in the state is for. It, it, Democrats have it a little differently than the Republicans on what they want to do on their policies. But they do agree we need to, because we got the highest property taxes, I think. Even California and New York, of course, they have other taxes to cover up for it. They don't have as high property taxes. But why would something as popular as that not pass two chambers just because of differences in the way they wanted to pass it? So, Derek, do, should we have a constitutional amendment to go to a unicameral system here in Texas? Uh, I, I, I would, I would <laughs> hesitate to make anything more like Nebraska just so the general thing. <laughs> no, I think, I think, I think it's, it, it, you raise a good question insofar as, you know, if we have, you know, what is the purpose of government where if you have this, dura, you know, if we go back to the founding, you know, the whole thing was about Palma getting durable consensuses. And if we have something that, you know, there's no, I would argue no consensus more durable than I would like to pay less in property taxes. Um, <laughs> I don't believe there are any no votes in yeah, the chamber for that. that plans. I was going to say, that would be a hot take. <laughs> um, that, the, 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 the thing is, though, if you look at, if you look at the, the, the legislature more generally, you know, they meet two years, they meet for 140 days, 60 of which you're not allowed to do anything fun anyway. Um, in that particular model, I, and this is what I tell all the, the, the policy folk here, is that the default state of any bill is dead. And then it is incumbent upon its supporters, its champions, uh, to, to uh, basically move it. Now the problem, of course, then being is even if you do have something of such universal acclaim and agreement, different, differing on the minutia on the policy is enough to, uh, to short circuit. Now I still would say on net, it's better to have a legislature, again, in Ohio, we have a, or you know, they have a completely full-time legislature. They're in 24-7, you know, not uh, 2021 notwithstanding, we still are not a full-time legislature. But what you see come out of those states is that special interests have a lot more time to burrow in. And so the laws that you see pass in full-time legislatures, and I would argue that that same rationale would probably translate to a unicameral legislature as well, is that you generally see the people that professionally work the process have an upsized advantage versus ours, where the grassroots, the average Texan are a very, very potent political force. And now obviously, you know, the folks out, you know, are in the building every day, day in and day out. They know more about the policy issue because they're often paid to do so. I would say I think that Texas has struck the right balance. I just really hope that with specifically property taxes, that that disagreement along the fringes is not enough to actually bottle or scupper the entire uh, agenda. Well, and it's also, I mean, we wouldn't, we, want, we don't want to question the vision of the founders. You know, we got the house, which is as I described it, you know, it's younger, it's got more people, it moves along. More the, ruckus. The, the, ruckus. The, the Senate, a lot, lot more veterans. I mean, that's kind of the vision. But it also, and we also, I would like to point out, we've got pretty much universal agreement on school choice. I mean, I think Texans want that as well. But it, the default is to kill the bills. There are 8,000 bills, 8,000 pieces of legislation. They're not all good. Introduced, <laughs> introduced every year. So, you know, what we love about this and why TPPF is so important is that we have found a place in that process. We don't operate like a special interest. We operate with information and we found a place in that process and I think 
I'd be for trust in the process rather than fighting the constitutional amendment. Yeah, and I think the to just put a finer touch on on their point that the whole process is set up to kill legislation, which I, as a conservative, is, I, I think is generally a good thing because you're right there. Generally, there's a lot of not good bills uh, filed. Um, but uh, I had a member tell me this, and it, it it just sticks with me as we work through this process. He said, most of the process, there is not much you can do to pass your bill, but there's a lot you can do to kill your bill. And so, you if you have that kind of mindset, then that t t helps you think through how you work it because there's a lot you can do to actually make it make make uh, it uh, easier for them to kill but I uh, totally agree with your frustration when you're so close on so many issues um, you want to get them done and so I, I think we'll continue and the lieutenant governor talked about maybe some rule changes and things like that that should be considered uh, in uh, well in both chambers really to, to do that but you want to make sure that you're not making it easier to pass bad legislation easier either so I think that would be the one thing I would want to count that, counteract that with. While oh. we're on this process point, there's a lot of frustration right now. And you know we're seeing, and this happens every year, the chambers like to fight each other and throw mud at each other. It's, it's a tradition unlike any other in Texas. Um, and that's all come to a head right now. But one thing I want to emphasize is at TPPF, we are nonpartisan. We will work with anybody, regardless of what party they're a member of, to get good things done. In a similar vein, we are non-cameral. We will work with both chambers. We need to work with both chambers. There's things that I love about working with the House. There's things that frustrate me about working with the House. Same with the Senate. They each operate differently. You have to take them as they are. Now, does that mean we don't need to maybe make some changes with rules? No, it doesn't mean that. We need to examine the process and make sure that the process is still working the way it is intended to work and hasn't been weaponized or abused in certain ways. That happens in both chambers. That's a good thing for us to go through the process of resetting and making sure that the process is fair and is functional. Um, but I don't want the takeaway from this conversation to be, you know, Senate good, House bad, or House good, Senate bad. They are who they are. They, like people, they have their own personalities. And as somebody who spends a whole lot of time in that building, you learn how to work with each, and then you adapt to the realities of each. Um, and that's how you're ultimately successful. Awesome, thank you. Well, please help me thank our, our panelists today for a great conversation. <laughs> And thank you all for, for joining us. You know, I'll leave you a quick thing. We talked a little bit about this. I think Andrew's last point was just right. You know, a few years ago, at a memorial service in, in Dallas, uh, President George W. Bush said that we often judge others by the worst examples and ourselves by our best intentions. And, and that is very common in this world. But I think the good news is not only did we have a very successful session, there's a lot of things that we should celebrate. But then this year, there's going to be a lot of great wins for Texas. And I think as long as, as we here at TPF, you out there, and our legislators continue to walk uh, with humility, grace, and courage that a lot of great things will happen and the state will continue to lead. So, so thank you so much for being here and we'll see you at our next live stream. Thank you for coming. Thank you.